Welcome to the Woodshop Life Podcast, a bi-weekly podcast focused on the craft of woodworking. I'm Guy Dunlap from Guy's Woodshop, and I'm joined by Hui Huin, a.k.a. The Alabama Woodworker. Hello, Guy. <laughs> hello, Hui. And Sean Walker, creator of Simple Cove. Say hello, Sean. Hello, Guy and Hui. Oh, thank you. Oh, that's nice. Thank you. Thank you. Well, thank you. Both of you guys here. <laughs> <laughs> this podcast is intended to answer questions from you, the woodworking community, and give you some of our perspectives on how we get things done in our own shops. We also have a Patreon account, and right now we have one level, and we're simply asking for a small donation, basically a tip jar, just to try to cover the cost of bringing you this podcast. So please go to patreon.com slash woodshoplife. So... Bring it right into it. And we, you've got the first question. All right. This question is from Nathaniel and he says, Hey guys, very green to the craft. I've built up my shop with a good stable of power tools, router table, job site saw, track saw, etc. My shop is only partially insulated. I live in a humid area. Should I invest in getting it fully insulated and airtight before I invest in cast iron milling machines like bandsaw, joiner, planer, and etc.? Very good question. Um, I will say that I don't think you need to get it fully insulated and airtight before you get cast iron milling machines. I think there are ways to prevent rust uh, from uh, sort of attacking your cast iron tops. There are a lot of different rust inhibitors that are out there, coatings that you can put onto the surface of your cast iron milling machines that would help prevent rust from, from accumulating during those really humid months. That being said, absolutely, I think um, insulating your shop and having it uh, sealing the garage doors, uh, sealing the doors, sealing the windows is definitely going to help because the bigger the fluctuation in the temperature, the bigger temperature swings that you have, the more likely there's going to be humidity that accumulates uh, in your shop. But uh, I would definitely look into some of the rust inhibitors. I know there's uh, bow shields, although I'm not a big fan of bow shields because of the way um, it leaves the surface of the cast iron a little sticky in my opinion but there yeah. are other ones out there um, I think WD-40 has a brand of rust inhibitor but what do you guys do I, I mean I still use a rust inhibitor even though that my shop is fully insulated and I have a ductless mini split I still use a rust inhibitor every now and then what do you guys yeah. do do you do you sort of do the same thing or are your shops fully yeah. insulated yeah, mine is. Uh, I, I just use paste, Johnson's paste wax after I clean it the mm -hmm. surface, and you know, just leave that on the surface and buff it off. And but I, I've I've noticed the same thing about the bow shield. I didn't know if it was me or if I didn't apply it right, but it, you're right, it left it sticky, and I was like, what the heck? Yeah. So yeah. I I never used it again. And see, I've used I've used bow shield for fifteen thirty years. years. Oh, damn, I was close. <laughs> fifteen years and have never had an issue with it, and I like it. That's what I use. Okay. Okay. Oh. Maybe you can teach us what we did wrong then. <laughs> I just found it a little sticky and I kind of didn't like the way the surface is. How do you clean? Do you, do you guys clean your, your uh, surfaces off with like mineral spirits and a, and a mm -hmm. yeah. uh, pad? Yeah, I do yep. the same. I do the same. Yep. But I, to, to directly answer Nate, Nathaniel's question, do you think, of course it would be a, in his best interest to fully insulate his garage and, and, and keep it airtight. But do you think it's actually necessary or do you think just a rust inhibitor would be fine for now? I, I, I honestly think, you know, if, if I was, I guess the best way to answer this question is if I was in Nathaniel's shoes mm -hmm. and I really wanted to go out there and start woodworking. Mm -hmm. And I, I felt that I had a need for some machines, not just, you know, 
hand power tools, but actual machines like he's talking about. Yep. Joiner, bandsaw, table saw, things like that. If it were me, damn the rust, I'm getting the machines and I'm putting them in the shop. <laughs> yeah. And I'll deal with the rust later. Yeah, yeah. Rust is easy to clean off. As long as it doesn't sit there for years, it's not going to damage the machine. It's only surface rust. Right. It'll come off with a scotch Brite pad. Hell, mm-hmm. I've I've sanded the tops of my machines before with yep. sandpaper. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's cast iron. It's pretty tough stuff. My shop right now is fully insulated, but I still get, you know, my wife goes in and out of the garage and their their water can come out of the garage door because they go over, the garage door goes over the machines. Yep. And I get little water drops and they sit there for a couple of days. I got rust spots. Mm-hmm. I just go out there with a, a scotch Brite and shh, clean it up and I'm done. Yeah. But uh, I really like Sean's idea for Nathaniel of using Johnson Space Wax. Yep. I think that would be a really good thing to do. Yeah, relatively inexpensive. It's something that he can continue to maintain without having uh, yep. a, a big expense. Yeah, yep. definitely. I, I think you're right. I think definitely go ahead and get the machines, man. I, it shouldn't be an issue. And you'll learn how to maintain your machines pretty well. So get in good All right. rhythm. So. All right. I think the next question goes to Sean. All right. This was um, kind of aimed at Guy, but I stole it from him. So you're going to hear, you'll hear a guy answer anyway. So this is from Dale. Hi guys, I'm making a Morris chair out of cherry. I'm ready to assemble, but before I do, I'm figuring out how to finish. I was listening to Guy speak about using a coat of garnet shellac and then a top coat of water locks. Can you go into detail on this procedure and any other favorite cherry wood finishing tips? Thanks so much. I, I'm going to let Guy speak to this first one. And, you know, since it was kind of aimed to him, then I'm going to talk about, you know, some of my favorite cherry finishes uh, with, I guess, shellac and, and oil and all that stuff. But Guy, I don't recall you saying you put shell- garnet shellac under water locks. Uh, do you recall that conversation? Yep. That's what I do. Why you put garnet under water locks? Well, I like putting shellac down on cherry anyway. Oh, mm-hmm. Yeah. Mainly if I'm going to, and if, and especially if I'm going to put an oil finish over the top, it really helps minimize the blotching. Yeah, Mm. that's right. Yeah. So, uh, and plus the garnet shellac will also help color the wood. Yeah. Actually, I use a three-step process. My first is using potash or uh, potassium dichlorate dichromate mm-hmm. which is i think something we've talked about before i sent you some yeah. of that didn't i sean you didn't send it to me i left your house with it okay yeah, i gave you something yeah. um yeah it oxidizes the cherry yeah yeah it oxidizes the cherry and makes it dark i can take something that you know like a a, a salmon pink piece of cherry and when i'm done with it it looks like an antique mm-hmm. it looks like it's been sitting around for 40 years in the sunlight and that process is the potassium dichromate one or two coats of garnet shellac, and then I'll sand it all back. Not all of it, but you know, sand it back. And then I, I, I like using water locks because it has a reddish brown tint to it. Mm. And I get a really nice color from it. All right. So this, I didn't mean to get ahead on this question here, but th- this specific question here is what is your process for garnet shellac and water locks? How many coats of garnet shellac? What pound cut? How many coats before then you apply the water locks? Uh, I always use a pound and a half cut of shellac yeah, or give or take somewhere around there, but it's, I usually yeah, shoot for a pound and a pound and a half cut. I'll put one coat on, sand it back, then take a look at it and see how well it took. And it also depends on 
how much or if any figure is in the wood. If it's got a lot of figure and there's lots of, you know, very common with, with cherry, you don't see it until you put something like shellac on it, yep. is a, a quilting mm-hmm. in certain areas. And it'll become really evident when you put the, the, the shellac on. And if it's got a lot of quilting, especially on like a top or something like that, I'll go ahead and put another coat of shellac on it just so that when I know, because when I put oil on it, it's going to blotch mm-hmm. in those areas. And I don't want it to blotch. One, maybe two, but typically just one coat of garnet shellac, sanded back, and then water locks. And water locks is usually three to four coats, depending on what I'm going for. The water locks also leaves more than a set. It's not gloss by any stretch of the imagination, but it's definitely not satin either. Mm. And you you need to, to, I use a little bit of, of wax and I'll thin that with some mineral spirits and I'll use a, a steel wool and I'll sand the, the water locks after it sat for about a week. Hmm. I made sure it's nice and dry. What's the application process for water locks? Is it is it brushed on? Is it? I, I, I use it. It's it's a wiping. It's a wiping poly. Okay. Okay. Just think of it like that. I just use. I believe it or not, I use paper towels. Even blue when paper I do towels. blue. What's it, that? Blue paper towels. No, just paper towels. Whatever I got in the kitchen. Oh. Okay. And that's what I. I mean, like Armor Seal. That's what I use. I don't use rags or any of that, anything like that. I use paper towels. I'll just put them on there. They're, in, in my shop, there's going to get dust nibs anyways. Sure. I can't, you can't get away from it because I'm doing other things in the shop. And I, you know, it, it, to put three or four coats of water locks on and the shellac, you're talking about a week long process. And then I got to let it sit for a week because I want to make sure the, the finish is hard before I start buffing it out with, with steel wool and wax. Mm-hmm. to get the satin or, or matte finish that I like. It's going to get dust nibs on it. It's not a big deal. So, I'll, And the, the, the paper towels are going to have little things in it, and it's going to get in the finish. That's okay. I'll, I'll sand them out. Mm-hmm. I'm not worried about it. But that's my that's my process. Cool. That uh, That's the first part of that. So I've done the opposite when I've had, I think, blonde shellac. I have put boiled linseed oil on cherry first and then applied shellac, the blonde shellac. Yep. Mm. I have gone the reverse of that. And the desk that I'm at right now, I did use an, a boiled linseed oil shellac finish on it. And it looks looks fantastic. I have, so I have done that, the oil first. You haven't had any problems with, with blotching? No, none. Zero. Mm. Okay. Nope. I got lucky on this. Uh, I mean, there's definitely... You know, there's definitely a cherry where you're going to run into blotching, but you know, not all of it is going to. I mean, there. I mean, if there is blotching, you know, it's real small and not not real noticeable. But I have gone the reverse. Outside of that, I just I I'll, I do like water locks on cherry. I think it looks fantastic. I just hate the smell of water locks. It smells awful, terrible, and you know it lingers for a long time, at least for my nose. Uh, but outside of uh, you know oil shellac finish armor seal is my go-to water locks i love the look of water locks you know like they say the sun is a is a great a great way to make cherry look good yeah. in time in the summertime i'll take it on the back deck and leave it back there for like four or five hours mm. if i can and it just four or five hours makes a big difference can i ask because i've never used water locks before but uh what what would be the difference between like a water locks and maybe your typical wiping poly 
And why why would I maybe want to use water locks over the other? Sean, I have no, I don't use it. I've used it once. I mean, mm-hmm. I know I thought it was a a three part with a tongue oil instead of like a boiled linseed oil. Again, I, I've used it once, and it's expensive and it stinks, but it looks fantastic on <laughs> on cherry. It's expensive and it smells bad. It's, um, uh, it's like high quality resins, and I I mean, it looks great, but I just it's expensive and I don't like the smell of it, so I don't use it. Yeah, unfortunately, I don't know the the chemical makeup of that stuff. I'm not. Mm-hmm. I don't get that granular. Sure, stuff. sure. Some, somebody once told me to use it and try it, and I liked it. Okay. I can't okay. remember where. When you use it, it's very, it's like a very dark reddish brown or brownish. Yeah. I should say brownish mm-hmm. red. It's more red than it is brown. Okay. And it's, it's very dark. So when you put it on, it imparts color to the cherry. Mm-hmm. The other thing I like about it, and I mentioned this before, is it can make a piece look very old. Mm-hmm. One of the things about antiques, and I, I've, I've, I have heard and seen and read articles where people actually do this, where in like the, the, the corners of something, they'll build up extra finish and actually color it darker in that one area to make it look mm. like it's a buildup of wax that took a hundred years to build up. Mm. Interesting. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah. Yeah. Yep. I know. Um, when I do the water locks and I, like I say I do three, four, maybe even five coats sometimes. And then I buff it out with the, with the wax and the steel wool. It builds up in the corners a little bit and it has a really neat look. It makes it look antique. Like I said, it looks like something that's been around for a very long time. Right. And that's why I like it. Yeah. Um, it's, it's definitely, it's a high quality finish for sure. I yeah, mean, it, just yeah. reading it, their top five ingredients, it's a tongue oil, linseed oil, resin, mineral spirits, and Easter or ester gum. Okay. So, I mean, it's a tongue oil and linseed oil and resin. Oh, and, and uh, ester's gums. And ester's gums. <laughs> <laughs> Along with uh, phenolic resin and mineral spirits. So yeah, see, there's 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 extra stuff in there that you're not going to find in, in there's in ester regular... stuff in there. Yeah, ester yeah. stuff. <laughs> no, it, it's it's a high quality finish. It's it's expensive, yeah. but it's high quality. It's expensive it as all get out. Yeah. If I don't do that, if I'm not going for that look of something really old, mm-hmm. especially on a more modern piece, I don't want it to look like it's a hundred years old. Mm-hmm. I want it to look modern and new. In which case, I'll do the same thing. I'll still use garnet shellac just to get just to impart color to it. But then I will just use like a, a regular armor seal over the top of that. Oh, yeah. Yep. And if you need to spray water-based finish, you can do the garnet shellac and then water-based on top. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I like I like cherry. It's a fantastic species to use for walnut. I know you're not talking about walnut, but eh, I'll save that for another show. Hui, <laughs> um, did you have anything to add to what we talked about for cherry? No, I just you- had more so. I just had questions. I mean, I've done I've done pretty much the same process that both you and Guy have, which is garnet shellac and then an armor seal or a water based poly over top of it. But you know, the water locks conversation is very much an educational one for me, uh, particularly if I'm doing a period piece. I think that would be a great go-to. It would make sense to kind of give it that uh, antique look. Yep. Gained a lot of information there. Appreciate it. All right. Well, see, that was a twofer right there, Dale. I was able to get Guy to answer that because I was curious and we also answered that. So hopefully that helped. And I'm going to kick it back to Guy for his first question. All right. This is from Rob and says, hey, Guy, Hui, and Sean. 
could you explain the difference in terms of function and application between dust collectors, dust extractors, and shop vacuums? Why are dust extractors so much more expensive than shop vacuums? At what point is it worth the investment to get a dust extractor over a shop vacuum, especially if you also have invested in a dust collector for your larger stationary tools? Thanks and keep up the great work with the show, Rob. So he's asking, you know, basically what's the difference between all these machines? And I think a nice way to do this, since we've got three guys here, is that I'll talk about dust collectors and what a dust collector should be hooked up to and why. And then Sean can I'll talk take a about, shop vac. Talk about shop vacuums. <laughs> And then we can talk about dust extractors and why a dust extractor Great, thanks. is better than a shop vac. <laughs> or do you want me to do the dust extractors? It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. I don't think there's okay. much to say about it. Well, go ahead. Okay. Well, let's let's talk. I'll I'll talk about dust extractors. Okay. Just so to make things easy. Sure. A dust extractor is basically a shop vacuum, and I know they're a lot more expensive. So why why should I pay? you know, upwards of seven, $800 for a dust extractor when I can go to uh, Home Depot and buy a shop vac for 50 bucks that has basically the same CFM. It has to do with the HEPA filters. When you use a regular shop vac, a large portion of that just goes right back out into the air. It's, it, it's removing dust from whatever you're working on, mm-hmm. but it's going through there. It's going through the filter. The filter cartridge is only filtering down to, you know, 15, 20 microns if you're lucky. And then it's going right back out in the air. So it's catching the big stuff, mm-hmm. yep. but all the little stuff is just going right back out into the air. With the HEPA, I can't remember what HEPA stands for. But it, it, it's basically a certification that they give certain pieces of equipment. And it has to remove, I think it's like down to, it has to re- remove like 99.7, something like that of particles. And it's got to go down to like a micron or a micron and a half. Yeah. A micron is one millionth of a meter. So, you know, imperceptible to the human eye. That's the stuff that gets caught in your lungs. Mm -hmm. And the last company I worked for, we did a lot of work in hospitals and we had to pull a lot of wire for our devices inside of hospitals. We actually had HEPA tents. (laughs) That was this tent that we would go up in the ceiling tiles. We'd take, you know, it had a a HEPA vac, a dust extractor, Mm -hmm. and we would open up a ceiling tile and we had to have this tent around it, and we'd pull the wire four or five feet, put the ceiling tile back, move the tent, open up the ceiling tile, boom, 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 and you know, pull miles of wire that way. That's it took us a long time, but that's a dust extractor. All of them, for the most part, are going to be HEPA. Mm-hmm. They're going to have about the same suction. Now, the other thing too is when you look at the CFM of a shop vac or a dust extractor versus a dust collector. Mm-hmm. They'll say it's like a 137 or 140 CFM, which is a lot right at that little hose, mm-hmm. but it doesn't have a lot of uh, static pressure behind it. It's very low in static pressure. It works well on single tools like a hand power tool. 
like a hand sander or a biscuit joiner or a domino Mm -hmm. track saw, things like that. And it works very well for small tools like that over a very short run. That's why you'd get a dust, dust, uh, a dust extractor over a shop vac. Mm -hmm. So Hui, why don't you talk about dust collectors? So dust collectors, when I think of a dust collector, I think of a central dust collector. Uh, So something that either is connected to bigger machines like your table saw, jointer, planer, um, bandsaw, things like that. And they have a lot more volume of air flowing through them. And so they're going to be able to pick up those bigger chips, uh, the bigger chips that are coming off of your planer head, for instance, or your joiner head. And so they don't have the same velocity as the uh, dust extractors, but they are meant to move a large volume of air. And so those machines that are producing a lot of chips and a lot of debris, that's what you would use a dust extract, uh, excuse me, dust collector for. Yeah. And it's got, it's got a lot more, it's got a lot more torque to it. So it can pick up heavier pieces. That's a static pressure. That's the static. Correct. Yeah. The static pressure. pressure. Yep. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So it has a higher static pressure. They come in all different sizes from, I think like half horsepower all the way up. I mean, there are some gigantic ones like 10 horsepower machines, but Either uh, you know they're they're mobile ones or the the central ones that are sort of uh, centrally emplaced, but they're for the bigger machines and and you wouldn't use although I have seen people try it and you wouldn't use a smaller dust extractor for those bigger machines because they're just not going to be able to keep up with the amount of wood chips that uh, that those machines are producing. So. Yeah, I think I've heard it as dust collector is high volume, low pressure, and yep. then the shop vacs are high pressure, low volume. Correct. Yeah. So how about shop vacs? Well, just take what Guy said and then the, it's the opposite. So <laughs> you can <laughs> think of them as they're shop vacs. They just don't have as good of filtration Mm-hmm. Um, they're going to have the same CFMs for the most part, depending on the models, you know, not all, not all models are equal, mm-hmm. but they're just not as efficient and they're not, you can buy the nicer HEPA filters and all that stuff for them. Mm-hmm. You know, the $40 shop vac at Lowe's is just, it's not going to pick up that fine dust that's going to get in your lungs that you're not going to always see for that, for the fine dust that you're using, that you're creating with like your hand sanders and stuff. That's the stuff that you really want to capture is the stuff that you can't see and the shop vacs are just not, they're not going to do a, a great job of, of keeping it in the shop vac. It'll collect it, but it's going to spit it right back out the exhaust port on the back. And a good example of this was I was CNCing some MDF and I didn't, and I had my shop vac connected to it instead of my, my Festool CT, whatever the number is. And I just had a fine layer of MDF dust on the floor behind the shop vac and it just wasn't doing a good job of picking up those fine particles. And I didn't even realize it until the job was almost done. Then I switched it to the, uh, to this Festool. Um, and it's just, I'm just saying, it's, I'm not saying that Festool is the only one that can do this. It's just the only brand that I have outside of ShopVac. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it did a great job of picking all of that fine dust up. It didn't spit anything out. Didn't have a, leave a, 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 a thin layer of anything anywhere. Uh, you're really going to, pay for the 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 HEPA filter, the fine filtration that's going to save your lungs in the in the long run. Uh, they're just better at that. They're built for that instead of the shop facts that you retrofit HEPA bags and HEPA filters on them. There's there's a difference in the the way that they are uh, assembled and designed as well. It's not just all about 
the filter in the bag. There's some other things that go into it as well. Another another big advantage to the dust extractors are for people that are in the trades. Mm-hmm. So let's say they're going to a house to do whatever work. It's better for them to use a dust extractor because it's going to leave the area cleaner than they would if it was just a shop vac. So I've noticed noise too. Have you noticed that all shop vacs are just so much louder than any of the dust extractors I've ever used. Have you ever noticed that? They're pretty loud. They're pretty loud. They're pretty loud. I think my CT, was it 36? I think the larger one. I mean, I think it's, it's quieter than my shop vac, but it's still, you know, it's still a little loud. Yeah. Yeah. Quieter than my shop vac. Have you ever seen a dust extractor that can also do water? Uh, Because I think only shop vacs can do that, right? Well, shop vacs that are wet, dry can do it. Yeah, wet, dry, shop vac. Okay, yeah, yeah. I never, I've never had a need to vacuum up water, so. Nor have I, but. <laughs> I want. I feel like I, I read, I could be completely wrong on this, but if you took the bag and the filter out, I, I want to say that you can pick up water with the Festool, CT, whatever it is. I don't know. I could be completely wrong, but I thought I read something, but don't take yeah. my word for I don't want yeah. you to go out there and try it <laughs> and ruin your CT back. <laughs> yeah. Don't do so, that. I, I hope that helps Rob. I mean, so basically, so a dust collector would be for your larger machines, your band saws, your table saws, your joiner, your planer, things that are creating a lot of chips and a lot of dust. And you need to have a high volume of heavier material removed. The shop vacs and the dust extractors are more for your hand tools or for cleaning up around the shop mm-hmm. where it's a single tool and it's just creating some dust and not a lot of big, huge chips. Uh, small chips would be fine, but let's say like a biscuit joiner or a, or a domino. And the dust extractor advantage over the shop vac is that it's going to leave the surrounding area cleaner as the dirt and debris go into less comes out of the back end of it. The shop back will pick it up, but it's going to spit it right back out. The small stuff. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The real small stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Stuff you can't see that's dangerous. Yep. All right. So I guess we're kicking it back to. Hui. Yep. And this is from Jacob from North Carolina. He says, hello, Sean, Hui and Guy. Do y'all ever apply salt to a glue joint? I've known about this trick for a few years, but never used it. I've recently used it on a few shop projects, and it works surprisingly well. I was most pleased with the efficiency of the glue-up because I did not encounter any slipping joints during clamping. Before introducing this into my standard glue-up process, I want to know if the salt negatively affects the integrity of the glue and or joint. Thanks for the great podcast. I've been listening since episode one, and I've enjoyed them all. Even the ones that guy is drinking heavily and cursing Laguna band sauce. <laughs> wow. I don't, I don't drink. <laughs> Not on here anyway. So to answer his question, I've never applied salt to the glue joint. I've, I've heard of it. I've seen, I've not seen anybody actually do it. I I've just heard about it through passing on forums and things like that. I've never found the need to do that. If I'm gluing, let's say I'm gluing up panels or whatever, I'll apply glue to the edge and I'll actually do a little rub back and forth for the glue to bite or to grip, um, to tack up. And then I'll, you know, that usually does the trick for me. If I need to put, you know, a clamp on the ends to kind of, 
uh, keep the boards in line, I might do that. But I've never done the salt on the glue joint trick. And honestly, I don't even know if that would negatively impair the or the integrity of the glue joint have you guys ever done anything like this or have you i'm, I'm sure you guys have heard about it right We've yeah all, i've heard of it but yeah, i've never yeah. tried it before yeah i probably wouldn't try it because i feel like i can do a decent enough glue joint with without it and my thought is if you know if i'm doing like kind of a test glue up but like just putting boards together if if i've got gaps or if i know it's i feel like oh well this isn't the greatest of joints well, I'm just going to go back to the joiner and rejoin it and make sure that I get to a point where I feel like when I put pressure on the clamps that it's just not going to slip all over the place or that it's actually going to come together and maybe not um, bow or cup or whatnot. Uh, I, I don't know. I, I, I would probably stay away from doing something like that just because I don't find the need. But no, I, I've seen some folks do it when they when they do like a lamination, say they got like a eight inch wide board and mm -hmm. you know they're gluing up four of them to get a, a three inch thick piece i've seen them use it for that mm -hmm. uh just to prevent slipping but i personally have never have, have never used that trick like a butcher block top you talking about yeah like if say you you want to get a four inch three inch thick piece of wood you take four three quarter inch boards and you laminate them yeah yeah okay on got top it. of each other because you got that real wide surface and the you know helps prevent pre prevents it from slipping is you know, uh, what i've seen it used for but i've never used it what I've seen folks do is they use a parallel clamp running along the width of those boards so that yeah. they don't slip and then tighten down along the thickness of the boards. Am I making sense there? Yeah, yeah. you're going across. But the problem <laughs> yeah. is yeah. You, you, can only get, you can only get so deep on that. So imagine if you had a three, three and a half inch piece or something, those sure. yeah. you need multiple clamps. Yeah, no, I, I understand. Uh, again, I, I was just sort of uh, bringing an alternative to what you were the saying there is like and the folks that, that only have pipe clamps have you know less uh surface true true that. that true that yep yep how about you guy have you ever done the the whole salt on the glue joint trick no the only time i have a problem with pieces slipping by one another mainly is doing what sean was talking about where you're taking two three four thicknesses of wood to get make something bigger and you clamp them together and they start slipping and sliding all over the place. Mm -hmm. And you know what? Every time I do that, I, I start gluing the thing up and it's slipping and sliding all over the place. And man, I should have tried that salt trick. Yeah. But yeah. it's too late. At that <laughs> point. So I've never tried it. As far as if it is detrimental to the joint at all, I don't see how it really could be. I don't see what it could hurt. Mm -hmm. It's just salt. I don't know, you know, if it's a PVA glue, if it's going to change the chemical composition of it enough, the, the sodium the chloride or whatever the hell it is, the salt, whatever salt is, if it's going to change that and have some type of adverse reaction. If anybody listening out there is a scientist and knows the answer to this question, Please write us. You know who would know the answer to this? Ty Bond? It's Brian Grella, Garage Woodworks. He's an actual scientist. He's a chem he's a he's got a PhD in chemical engineering. <laughs> he's a doctor. <laughs> he knows this stuff inside and out. I bet he would know. 
but I don't know. But I, I don't think I, I, I don't think it's going to hurt anything. I've never heard of it. Anybody saying anything about that, whether it's negative to the to the joint. So I don't know if it works for you. Hey, great. I'll, I, I still mean to try it sometime. I just forget to. Yeah. I just I just can't. I, again, I've never done it. I just can't see it really helping. If you've got enough glue to cause the boards to get that crazy, is it how much do you have to put on there for it to really affect the uh, the traction? Yeah, I don't know. But I've I've done a thing where I've 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 put a, a brad nail in. Yeah, for yeah. yeah. Yep. And then snip the head off of it. Pound and, it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And pound it in there so stuff doesn't move around. Yep. Done that as I've well. I've done that before. Mm-hmm. That works pretty well. I've never tried the salt thing. All right. Well, try the salt thing and let us know. Yep. Guy. (laughs) Well, I think that goes back to you, Sean. You got uh, your second question up. All right. This is from Daniel. Hey, guys. Love the podcast. I've been thinking of growing my skills to include hand planes. And as I have picked up quite a few in the estate sales, most in good condition. Rust is a huge problem in my shop. And I was curious, how do you protect your hand planes? Any specific coding or routine you follow? Thanks for the great podcast. So rust is a hot topic uh, tonight. Tis the season. That's right. The What I do is, so I have a hand plane and I'm ready to sharpen it. I take the blade out. I sharpen it, which I use uh, water stones. Um, so obviously there's a potential because there, there is water. Before I put it back together, I do wipe everything down with jojoba oil. Jojoba? Jojoba. J-O. J-O-B-A. That's just J-O. Joba. No, it's jojoba. J o j o b a. Oh, j o j o. Why yeah. isn't oh. why isn't it jojoba? You'll have to, <laughs> I don't know. Why isn't it jai instead of guy? <laughs> oh, <man. laughs> I have no idea. But I, I knew you were going to ask this, so I've got it up on uh, on on the internet here. It's a uh, it's an odorless liquid wax made from the seed of the jojoba plant. Native to the American Southwest. I have that on a rag that I have soaking in that. Uh, and I'll just, I wipe everything down, including the sole of the plane, all of the, all of the internal components, everything that's, uh, that could potentially rust. And, uh, that does a great job of keeping it, uh, rust free in my shop is just, you know, and if I don't use a plane for six months, you know, I make sure to inspect my planes at least once every you know month or two, but I'll wipe it down. Again, just to make sure. Uh, so that's what I do is I use jojoba oil. And now the guy's got me kind of messing up here. But if I do notice um, rust on there, I keep these uh, synthetic pads. I'll start with the white synthetic pad, which uh, is the least abrasive. And if that doesn't get it, I'll go to the maroon, which is kind of in the middle. And that will uh, that's my go-to to remove any, any uh, stubborn rust. And then I will wipe it down with the oil. I'm not going to say the name of it. Now I do have brass on some of the hand planes and I use the Klingspore Sandflex blocks, the little hand blocks. They have um, a couple of different grits or three. They have a coarse, a medium and a fine. I think I have the fine and they're little rubber blocks that have uh, some silicon carbide abrasive embedded throughout the rubber block. I will use that to, to polish the, uh, the brass, but that's, that's pretty much if you, you get a new plane that doesn't have rust problems and you apply the oil and stay on top of it, you shouldn't have any issues. And if you yeah. notice it, wipe it off with uh, one of the synthetic pads, hit it with the oil again, and uh, it should should stay uh, should stay clean. Uh, outside of that, 
Hui, I know you uh, have a couple of hand tools over there. How do you how do you deal with keeping them rust free? Yeah, after I sharpen my uh, hand tools, I'll wipe them down dry, and then I have a rag that's been soaked several times in mineral oil, and um, it's kind of pretty much just saturated that sits underneath my workbench, and I just wipe it down with that. And uh, another thing that that will definitely help, and I know it seems kind of silly, but actually dusting off your hand planes, not leaving any sawdust on your hand planes because uh, the sawdust itself has a little bit of moisture in it, but just dusting them off really helps a lot too. But I, I, I try to keep it pretty simple as I, after I sharpen them, I just wipe them down with a rag that's been soaked in mineral oil. It just has, yeah. it's just a rag that I've been using over and over and over again. It's just underneath the, underneath the workbench. I just wipe everything down with. That's it. I mean, I just keep it really simple. Guy, how do you keep your, your hand tools from, from rusting? I don't do anything. <laughs> there you go. I'm serious. I don't, I don't have real, I really don't have a rust problem yeah. other than the occasional drip from the garage door. Mm-hmm. I don't have like here in Indiana, we don't have crazy humidity and it's not that bad. Yeah. So I, I don't do anything. I mean, I literally don't do anything to my hand. Plates. Yeah. And I've never had a spot of rust on them. I, after I sharpen them, you know, they get water on them. So I wipe them down and I do put, um, at that point, yes, I do. When I know that I've got, you know, I've got water on my hands and I'm touching the, the, the plain body. I don't use jojoba oil, but I use something else. I can't remember what it's called. It's Japanese and it's some kind of oil made for tools. Camellia oil? Yes. Ah, there you go. Okay. And I, I have a, a spray bottle of that that I've had for, you know, probably 10, 12 years. That's still three quarters full. Mm-hmm. And I just spritz a little bit of that on a rag and wipe it down afterwards. But that's after that's done. That's it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you I, can- I guess I guess I'm lucky. Yeah. 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 You can also use a, a light machine oil if you have that around. But the key is to uh, apply it, especially yeah. when it's around water. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Hope that helps. We're going to kick it back to Guy for the final question. All right. This is from Sean Fouché. And thank you for uh, the phonetic pronunciation of your name, Sean. So I didn't butcher it. Uh, He says, hello, gentlemen. I'm a part-time woodworker that does occasional commission work for a local distillery. Nice. Do they pay you in booze? Yeah. Two weeks ago, after listening to several of your episodes discussing track saws and Guy's affinity for the MFT-style table, I decided to purchase a TSC-55 at MFT-3 for the shop. And for the people listening that don't know what that is, that is a the, the smaller Festool track saw, and the MFT-3 is the table that has all the holes in it. He says, I wish I had done it sooner. The accuracy, setup, and ease of use of the MFT coupled with the dust collection of the TSC, which is a track saw, is a game changer. I want to get the most out of the MFT as far as work holding options and overall versatility. And I was wondering, or excuse me, I was curious if you have any recommendation on bench dogs. I've read about the aluminum dogs or quas dogs, stainless steel dogs, which are the parf dogs, dogs with special track attachment. Even woodpeckers sell a set of fancy red dogs with a wedge clamp system, all in a nifty sustainer. Mm. I typically work with four quarter and eight quarter material, plywood, half and three quarter. 
and oak barrel staves. That makes sense as you do work for a local distillery. Is there a specific type of dog I should be looking at to get the most out of the MFT top and track system, or am I overthinking this? Kind regards, Sean. So I keep it simple on mine. I use, I love my MFT table. I have some of the PARF dogs. They have a place. And I also have the Quaz dogs. Now I got the Quaz dogs before the PARF dogs were available. That's why I have them. I also, from Quaz, I got a, what they call their rail dogs. Yeah. Which screw into the track underneath the rail and fit into the holes. The combination of the Quaz dogs or the PARF dogs with the rail dogs does everything I need to on that tabletop. Mm -hmm. I don't need the Festool swing arm thingy. I don't even I, I don't even use that anymore. I haven't used it in years. I just use the rail dogs, <clears throat> excuse me, and the quaz dogs or the parf dogs. So the quaz dogs are fine. I don't know what the price difference is between the quaz dogs and the parf dogs. So I'll get whichever one is cheaper, to be honest with you. The quaz dogs are fine. Uh, I think they're probably less money. But you do they they make a product called rail dogs. That's what I would recommend. It's just, you know, a half a dozen of the, the dogs and a pair of the rail dogs, and you'll be able to do everything you need to with that table. We, I know you've got an MFT style table. Yep, yep. It's not an MFT table, but. Right, right. And what, what do you use? I'm using a, a brand out in California. The manufacturer out in California is named uh, Precision Dogs, and they have the squattier um, dogs, and then they have the thicker ones. So I got, I got a set of each because if I'm dealing with like thinner material, it's nice to have like the squattier dogs. Um, and I also have their version of the rail dogs that attach to okay. dual rail. Um, there are other brands out there. So like Quaz, Parf, I think Parf, Parf dogs are being sold by Lee Valley now, right? Yeah. Yep. Okay. Yeah. So, and then Quaz is still his, that's still his website. He's still selling them? I don't know. I bought them from Bob Marino's festival website. Mm, yeah, He's yeah. He's a guy out of New Jersey. Yep, yep. I, I bought him stuff as well. Precision Dogs, I, I think, are only sold through, through their website. And they've got uh, a whole bunch of things. I think Seneca sell. Does Seneca sell dogs? Yeah, Seneca, Seneca Woodworking has, has their own dog system now, too. And then there's another company called TSO. And so- yeah. But I don't know if they have rail dogs. I don't know if they have rail dogs. I do know they have all the other, you know, dogs and whatnot, but they have a bunch of stuff. It's so funny. I had a, somebody ask me why I chose to use Festool over any of the other brands. It's because there are all these like third party manufacturers of accessories that yeah. can be used with the MFT style Tom. So there, there's a lot of different manufacturers out there, especially now. I know, I know when I was first getting them, there were only two at the two or three at the time it was the quaz dogs parf dogs and precision dogs that was the only ones i could find but now there are like four other ones that are out there making a whole yeah. bunch of them. so check them out uh I, I i think guy you captured it you know a couple you know handful four to six of the uh of the s s short dogs and then and then the rail dogs and you're probably gonna be fine uh, yeah, that's, that's all, all i need yeah that's all i have sean do you do you use anything like that at all no, I don't. I don't have any sort of system like that. Uh, I would like to get a, an MFT three 
but I don't have like a, I don't have an MFT or anything like that set up in my shop, just a workbench. And I have just some, uh, what are they called? I don't have the through holes in my bench top. So it's those, uh, bench pups or something like that from mm-hmm. Lee Valley that have the spring on the bottom. Yeah. yeah. That's what I use. That's yeah. pretty cool. Yeah. Mine, mine is not an MFT three, I should say. Mm-hmm. What I did was I built my own frame and all I did was I bought was is actually their older style top, which is an MFT 1080. Mm-hmm. It's a little bit bigger than the MFT three. I can't remember by how much it's just a little bit bigger, but you can get one of those things for like a hundred bucks. And I just built my own frame around it. So, you don't. I, I didn't see the need to spend $600 on something that I'm never, that's never going to leave the shop. Right, right. It has legs on it and everything else. Yeah. yeah. And I built my own rail system on the side of it. It works. It works pretty well. Yeah, and yours actually connects between the um, your table saw and your assembly table, correct? Well, it doesn't connect to my assembly table, but it, it it's it is my outfeed table too, which is a blessing and a curse, <laughs> which we've talked about before. Because yeah. I'm always working on it, and then I can't use my table saw. Right, yeah. right. Yeah, Sean, don't overthink it. Just get four to six of the dogs, like like we said, and a set of rail dogs, and that's all you'll ever need. Mm-hmm. All right. Can, so there you go. I'm going to make sure that – no, I'm just joking. I was going to make some some joke, but it wasn't going to work out. But <laughs> I abandoned that joke. <laughs> You're leaving everybody hanging on the podcast, man. No, can't do it. Tune in next week. <laughs> Well, I think that's going to do it for this show. And we would also like to thank everyone who left us a five-star review on iTunes. It really helps us in the search rankings. And of course, we truly appreciate the support and feedback. So please remember the podcast here is answer questions from the woodworking community. And if you have questions and you would like them answered on this wonderful podcast, go to our podcast contact page at woodshoplifepodcast.com. Or DM us through Instagram at Woodshop Life. And you can reach me at guyswoodshop.com. And where can you be found at we? AlabamaWoodworker.com. And Sean? At Simple Cove on social media. And you can find me at simplecove.com where you can share your fantastic projects. Mm. Yes, you guys, if, if you people listening haven't had a chance to go look at that site, there is some amazing work being displayed over there by some really talented people. I, I definitely recommend taking a look at it. Um, anyways, very good. And I guess we will talk to you guys in a couple weeks. Talk to you in a couple. Bye. Okay. Bye.